0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramao Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Eileen J. Cheng to talk about her new book, Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, a translation of two works from the writer Lu Xun. Welcome to New Books, Eileen, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Of course. So why don't we start at the beginning with your beginning. So your origin story. How did you come to work on Chinese literature?
0: So my path to academia was rather circuitous. I started my undergrad years as a pre-med student. And I graduated with a degree in economics. Uh, needless to say, these choices were made more with practical control and my parents in mind. I did, however, control doing one thing which I've loved since childhood, which was just to keep on reading. And I read very voraciously. I read works in English and world literatures translated into English. And I particularly enjoyed fiction. And when I enrolled in a long-in Chinese literature course as another grad. I just people fascinated with this modern period, this period of cultural vibrancy, youth advocating for a new culture, and the passion they had for reading, translating and engaging with the world of ideas to transform their own. And so I was it was often really very inspiring to me. And this love of modern Chinese literature was also nurtured by the professor in the course, who was a remarkable teacher. And so, as armed with an inherent passion and with a gentle nudge from a mentor, I ended up in Beijing. There, I taught English. I did some freelance work as a translator, and I also sat in courses in Chinese language and literature at Beijing University. And after that, I returned to the States for graduate school in modern Chinese literature,
1: which eventually led me to where I am now. Great. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of things that will really resonate um, with some of the themes of the book, right? Translation, great teachers. (laughs) There's quite a bit of connection there. Uh, But as a way of getting us into this book, could you say a little bit about how this book came to be? So what inspired you to, you know, translate um, these two works in full? So how did this project come about? So, before
0: I answer that question, I have a confession to make, Sarah, which is that when I first read Lucian, I wasn't very fond of him. And so <laughs> now, how did I go from not being very fond of Lucian to spending the big part of my career writing about and translating his work? And so, when I first read Lucian, he, he just felt very distant to me. And I think that's for two reasons, uh, which some writers It takes some amount of life experience to really appreciate the nuances of their works, right? And I think Lotion is one of them. For example, in Japan where I am now, uh, the translation of Lotion's hometown is included in some junior high textbooks. And you might know, hometown is about a middle-aged man returning to his native village. He's filled with anticipation and nostalgia for a bygone past. And I find it really hard to imagine how students in junior high can appreciate this story. At any rate, another reason that Lushin's stories felt so distant to me is that they didn't come as a blank slate, right? Uh, reading his stories, you know, they've always kind of been framed in advance. And I think this is true for many readers who, who either read Lushin in junior high or a high school textbook. Uh, in Man China, or read Lucian um, in, in a course on literature and translation in, in other parts of the world. So, you know, this is a well known story that 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 I was told. Well, this is also how I teach Lucian, which is that he published diary of Man Man in ancient It's the first short story written in the modern Chinese vernacular. So He's known as the father of modern Chinese literature in Roland, China, and Mao Zedong hailed him as the sage of modern China. So in the course of this evocation, oceans has been transformed into this larger-than-life revolutionary warrior that's kind of not that easy to relate to. And a common adjective that's used to describe Roland's writings is love, that he's cold. He's detached, clinical, China-obsessed, Was so critical of society and people, and he was also extremely critical of himself. Uh, But there's one question it asks, right? Which is, where is the healing behind this titan? And I think for most of us, it's that healing connection, right? The ability of a piece of work to move us or to touch our soul that that really makes us love reading. And so for rule, it was really only after reading Lucian's works broadly and across different genres, that I was able to see this kind of more human side and and really to come to appreciate and and really love his writings. So when he read broadly, you get a real sense for his artistic genius. Also his versatility as a writer. Um, There's also a very central field of his writings um so pays very close attention to transmitting visual oral and tactile experiences in language and as this you see readily in wild grass and you also see a wildly imaginative side and they need to tap into a world beyond or the memories imagination and the fantastic when they define where inezetis employs a very personal and personable personable storytelling technique. Right. You find this in his memoir "Morning Blossoms gathered at dust. You also see an introspective writer with a real keen cool interest in human psychology and a close eye for details. And I think this is something that he shares with another favorite writer of mine, John Anin, uh or well, known in English as Iain Chang. And you find a very relatable writer, one that sometimes filled with uncertainty and self doubt, but also passion and empathy and, and a really morbid and, and very wise sense of humor. And <clears throat> so as I find myself drawn into Lu Shen's world, I put my dissertation aside. I'd been working on women writers the at the time. And many people told me this was a terrible idea, uh, but I did it anyway, because I just loved engaging with Lu Shen's writings. And so fortunately for I, me, I was able to complete and publish a monograph on Nguyen. And as I was writing and I read his essays, I often just marveled at how his depictions of culture were just so on target. And there were these times where they were just so hilarious that I would sit there and find myself laughing out loud. And some of these essays were translated um, and I would think, well, why isn't it translated? And I think part of the reason is that translating Lü Shen can be very daunting, right? You wrote so much. The last complete works of Lü Shen stands at 18 volumes, and you wrote on so many topics. And language and thoughts were often very dense. They sometimes very difficult to understand. But having just finished my book and, and and loving the process, I thought, well, why not me? So I then heredity of translations of Lucian's essays, Jottings Under lamp Right, which was published in 2007. So, the was just kind of a natural progression to translate Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Dabber They're two brilliant works that I love, and they haven't been that accessible to a wide audience, at least not to audiences of English readers. Um, many critics cite it as a favorite work, and I include myself in this tweet. And for those who want to know more about Lucian, there's really no better place uh, to, to to read about him than in his own words, right? And in, in, in his memoir, uh, which is Morning Blossom Gathered with Us, which paints a very different picture from the revolutionary warrior that we're familiar with, right? And I hope. That in reading these two volumes together, that readers would be able to look at his writings afresh, to see the warm human Lu Xun beyond that image of cold, steely revolutionary warrior that we're so used to, right? And I was also hoping that we could look beyond his canonization as a quintessentially Chinese writer, right? I think right now in world literature, uh, Lu Xun is routinely taught. Um, and, and sure, he, he writes about China, but it's not just about China, right? I think you kind of miss the picture if we fully frame him as a Chinese writer writing about the Chinese nation, writing about the Chinese people, right? And so in these two models, you see how he explores the human pollution, right? And he asks questions like what does it mean to be human, right? And how do we find meaning and beauty in an uncertain and unjust world? and these things are explored in a way that is compelling and deeply moving and they're just as relevant to our world now as they were in shenstein um and these two volumes i i really think deserve to be on the shelf with every book lover of
1: course i'm slightly biased but i i i I definitely think that I mean it makes sense you've spent so much time with them <laughs> speaking to the bias right I think I think that's a a bias you can I suppose, be proud of or I guess own <laughs> Most certainly. yeah with um so you touched on this a little bit already you know you talk you talked to, to, in your answer there about how wild grass and morning blossoms gathered at dusk you know they show Lucian afresh a human a human Lucian and it pushes back against sort of, you know, the idea of him being this cold, um, (laughs) uh, you know, epic figure, but was there anything in particular that made you want to put these two volumes together in one book? Right. I mean, you could definitely, I, I suspect you could have had, you know, a book of wild grass and a book of morning blossoms gathered at dusk. Was there any, you know, reason, um, to, to pull them together as one, one volume? So initially, I actually
0: had thought of chanting them separately, um, but when I thought about it more, it made sense to to put them together. Uh, the pieces in both volumes were were first serialized journals, right? Wild Grass pieces in Wild Grass in the journal and you sit, read the talk. And the pieces in Morning Blossoms and and the Wilderness Monthly. Um, And there's actually an overlap in the time of writings. And some of the later pieces in Long Grass were in the same period as some of the earlier ones in um, uh, Morning Blossoms. And so having both forms together gives you a sense of Lucian's versatility, right? He was dealing with similar themes um, in different ways and in different forms. And I think reading them together makes the impact of his messages uh, even more powerful, right? And some of the flows are similar to the stories, such as the ephemeral nature of life, uh, brutality of human nature. Uh, But you also see a celebration of nature, its of wonder, and a spirit of resilience. And you see this captured in the title and preface of Wild Blast, alluding to the tenacity of grass, To regenerate after wildfires and its ability to thrive even in the harshest terrains. Um, And in both volumes, there's also an appeal for empathy and care for the other. Um, And you see this in the humanizing of nature and objects in wild grass. You also see this in the portrayal of vulnerable subjects in morning blossoms gathered at dusk. Um, And as I'm speaking... um, you might get a sense that there's some connection with Buddhist ideas and, and in fact uh, Lucian was very much immersed in Buddhist thought, uh, which is I think particularly apparent in Wild Grass. But I, I think both poems
1: work uh, really well together. Mm-hmm. As as one reader, they definitely do and there's so much of him in both of them as well or at least you know what we might recognize as him pulling from his life. Uh, With that, you know, you touched a little bit there on, you know, the overlapping time period that these two volumes both cover. But could you situate these works a little bit in terms of Lucian's life? So where do we find him when he's writing Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk? So the pieces
0: of both volumes are written between 1924 to 1926 and it was a time fraught with chaos and violence. Uh, China at the time was ruled by competing warlord factions and subject to imperialist aggression. And in 1925, there were mass boycotts and anti-imperialist demonstrations that spread across the cities. And the one particular demonstration on March 18, 1926, when um, Lushin called this the darkest day since the founding of the Republic, some 5,000 demonstrators, many of them students, converged on Beijing's Tiananmen Square and they were um, protesting against um, um, imperialism um, and the soldiers opened fire. And among the 47 dead, three we were Lucian students. He wrote a mobile tribute to them in a well-known essay in memory of Liu Heqin. And he wrote that he was stunned into silence by the killings and he was left with nothing to say, followed by a sentiment that I'm going to quote. when he said, I just feel that the world we live in is inhuman. I wanted to take inside an and talk about Lucian's voice in memory of Middle Heart In the aftermath of many protests in China and Hong Kong uh, that have happened since Lucian wrote the essay, now it's almost 100 years now, the essay is routinely mentioned and quoted. And it's giving voice to the generations after him who felt similarly stunned and without a voice to speak out against acts of government brutality against their own people. So this is a sign of how Lu Sheng's defiant spirit and his critical voice continues to resonate today, right? Um, at any rate, Lu Sheng was deeply affected by the violent aftermath of the protest on March 18, 1826. Uh, he contemned it in his writings and for that he was blacklisted Um, and you know in the preface of his memoir he he tells us that he completed in a nine month period in three locales right in Beijing where he went into hiding hiding places then he went to Xiamen and then Guangzhou so this was most certainly a physically mentally and spiritually unsettling period of his life but there's also a significant development on Lu Xun's personal life at this time. He met Xu Guangping in 1924. Xu Guangping was a symbol and activist involved at the Pitlu Women's Normal College where Lu Xun was teaching at the time and she was a local student agitating against the principal for the right to political protest and Xu Guangping uh, wrote to Lu Xun enlisting support uh, Lu Xun sided with the students, and he ended up resigning in protest. Um, and after that, he wrote pieces just hearing the college president and also the intellectuals that were supporting him. And as you may know, Shi Guangco later became Xun's common-law wife. And by all accounts, Bo Bokshin had never seemed to have anticipated a liaison outside of his marriage. Uh, in 1906, he had submitted to an arranged marriage with Chuan. and by the time he met Shu Pu in 1924, he had actually already been married for almost two decades. Um, but by all accounts, Lohsian kept his distance from his wife and will treat her very coldly. Uh, the marriage was purportedly never consummated, and there's this... Quote that's frequently circulated. Uh, it comes from one of Lucian's friends, and he said that uh, Lucian joined as a gift that his mother gave him, right? So this was a gift he can only accept and support, but that love was something he knew nothing about, right? And this unexpected development all changed his life drastically, as one can imagine. Uh, Xu Guangping and Lu eventually settled in Shanghai in 1927, where they resided and raised their son until Lu Xun's death in 1881. And many people know that Lu Xin's political shift to the left uh, came in 1926. And some scholars actually speculate that it might have been Xu Guangping who first radicalized Lu Xin, right? Uh, it pushed him into political action, starting with his participation in these student protests. <clears throat> but I also wanted to mention another personal event that uh, weighed heavily on Lushen just prior to his little pull uh, Lu Lushen was very close to his younger brother, Joe Zoreng, also a very famous writer. Um, and they were extremely close, but became a strange at the end of 1923. So when he started writing a wild grass, he had actually just moved out of the extended family compound that he shared with his mother and his brothers. And there's a part of me that just wonders if Lohshin's estranged from his brother and also the alternate family that he formed with Shukuan Po, might have allowed him to short some of his old identity and possibly even give him a kind of release and a restart. Um, at any rate, it was during this time of both political and personal turbulence that Lucian began to experiment with creative writing beyond short stories. Um, I also want to draw attention to Lushin's interest in ultrasound interest creativity on just no creative acts. Uh, in 1924, he published his translation of Kuriyagawa Hakusen's Symbol of Agony. And Symbols of Agony was inspired by Western theorists, such as and Goet. And according to Kuryagawa, art was in looms of releasing one's suppressed vital energies. And it allows for the creation of an individual world with total imaginative freedom. And, and it's not surprising, right in this period of, of deep anguish revolution, uh, I think writing and, and writing these two volumes was, was absolutely a kind of release. And I think s- some of these ideas and symbols of agonies about creativity might have also just inspired Lucian's creative experimentation at this time, right? Um, and while there are certain cartoon movies with his stories, uh, the pieces in a wild grass and Wild blossoms, I think you sense a kind of opening outward, a willingness to experiment with different narrative perspectives, and also just a lot notes of hope and defiance uh, than you see in stories.
1: Mm-hmm. The brother you are mentioning is that the brother who appears um, in the story The Kite? It is. And Is it's... that is is that the same brother? The brother when he's you know he's thinking back or at least this is the how the the piece goes. Um, he thinks of a time when he wronged his brother when they were children and he he plans to apo- you know apologize to his brother and hopes to feel better from it and yet his brother claims not to remember it and he feels no better for the entire episode. Is that the brother? It's
0: the same brother. And it's wow just really interesting because by the time he wrote that piece, they were already estranged. Right. And so yet you still feel this really kind of close connection. Um but but you know there's been speculation of why they became estranged and it's all speculation because neither brother talked about it. Right, but after the estrangement, they actually still continue to work together. Right, they're
1: friends. They just uh, never had direct contact. Hmm. He should have. He should have uh, said he remembered the kite. <laughs> he remembered the kite episode. That's so interesting. Uh, before you know, i I I feel I fear as if I've you know jumped in a little bit with wild grass there. Uh, but before we. Dive any further into Wild Grass. Um, you know, thinking about this, you know, work of of translation as translation. Um, I've read, uh, you know, you describe the process of translating these works elsewhere as exhilarating, and you you know, you mentioned before that some people have found uh, the idea of translating Lu Xun daunting. <laughs> what was your own experience of? Of you know, of translating like how is that process for you? So the Craig Gyatrix Feedback once said that translation is the most intimate
0: act of reading. And translating a text you love is exhilarating because it allows you to read and appreciate the text in a completely different manner. Right? The reading process becomes very granular. You read sentence by sentence, word by word. Um and we style in linguistic registers can be very challenging uh he's notorious for long and difficult sentences combining classical chinese with vernacular um, and reading at a granular level you get a real sense of motion skill in language and, and how much he love the world's um, and 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 also just how much pleasure and delight seemed to derive from the process right and well um, Translations can be rendered quickly, but Lu Xion's writings weren't designed to be quick or easy, right? Um, so Lucian once revised the myth of Prometheus in describing his role as a translator. Um, which just as, as as you know, but we sometimes forget, uh, Lu Xion, um first said that he wanted it, Sure, the outburst of people. And when he said that, he was really referring to the act of translation, right? He said, uh, as a translator, he took the foreign fire to burn his own flesh to be consoled by his obeyers. Now, this sounds rather masochistic, but I think what's important to note here is that in the process of that difficult labor of translation, uh, both the self and the other and others reading are transformed right and here i'm thinking of a different analogy that involves fire right which is scenics emerging out of the fire so following along these lines while the labor involved in reading translating evolution carefully can be very intense difficult and sometimes frustrating a uh, feeling that is work has been a wild binder and that You've been able to contribute to a process of giving an afterlife to works that you really love um, is also deeply satisfying. Um, and I certainly feel that the labor of translation was transformative for me. And I also wanted to note um, that when I was working, was some part of the work on the volumes coincided with the height of COVID anxiety. Um, and so the themes of uncertainty inhospitable nature of the world and the need to maintain radical hope, right? And radical hope. Uh, uh, and you teach that this is a hope that's without false optimism, it also not just giving into despair, right? I think mean, these things resonated with really me deeply. And at this, at the same time, can lead in day my life of kind of searching deep purpose and, and even a sense of freedom, right? So no matter what happened during the day, I knew with certainty every night, uh, all the dark and in the quiet, I could lose myself completely, right? As if through a portal into this underworld. And in the Cape Grass, it's a dreaming world in which nature was alive and speaking, and it's populated moving swarmcastic subjects. Um, they include sentient corpses, shadow that wants to leave its master. A flame and taste in ice, and our hot made of snow, among many, many others, right? And that imaginative world stayed very close to me as my own physical world trained, and I became very attached to that world and also the subjects in it. So, so I was really very reluctant for that translation process
1: to end and and, and that portal to another world to come to an end. <laughs> if only he had written more pieces. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many, and you you know you mentioned some of them there. There are so many fascinating you know figures and and beings and and things in in Wild Grass. Um, it sounds like it was a wonderful companion <laughs> um, as um, as as your world shrank and and as I guess I suppose we all clung to the idea that um, despair, like hope, is a delusion. As we were all of. Um, <laughs> going through, going through the pandemic. Uh, with that, why don't we turn properly to wild grass? Uh, so you know, you've given us a taste of it there in some of the different um, figures and creatures in it. Um, and as you say in the introduction that you you provide to this work, um, it is often referred to as a collection of, prose poems, but as you say, that description is not quite right. <laughs> it's a really eclectic mix of genres, you know, so there are prose poems, anecdotes, parables, dream writings, a short memoir, a little, a little short play, you know, there's a lot of different forms. Um, so, you know, with that, um, how is form being explored in wild grass? What do you what do you think about that? The use of form here and what was it like to translate and convey those different forms? Was that also an exhilarating <laughs> proposition? How was how was form experienced for you? Well, oh, it was absolutely exhilarating. And and as we as as
0: you had already mentioned, um People refer to the collection as one of Poe's poems, but it's not so accurate, right? It's like this whole wide range of different genres. And, and why did Lushu write in different genres? Right. I think writing in different genres and style, uh, Lu Lushin, a means of getting around the limits of form, right? He could experiment to find the best form that could express the emotions and ideas that he wanted to, and. A lot of his emotions ideas and worlds were so complicated and so diverse right um so i think the need to package the collection and to contain it by classifying it as prose poems might reflect our own need for kind of ordering and labeling and containing things in a way that makes the world feel comfortable and makes sense right um so the world of one Glasgow does just the opposite right it highlights uncertainty contradiction the nonsensical and messiness of life in general all kinds of borders are being crossed um, you can't tell sometimes whether it's a dream or reality. Um, and so all of this kind of messiness and, and crossing borders. Um, all of this is reflected in the content style language and the form of the work itself right Uh, and i think it's this remaining open to uncertainty being open to ambiguity and to contradiction which makes many of his works difficult and uncomfortable but you know sometimes you just want to read for leisure and have an easy reading right Uh, but i think it's also what wuxian's what, what makes Lucian's work so rich and profound. Um, as for your second question, what was it like conveying these different forms in translation? Um, it makes the work very engaging for a translator uh, that challenge you to engage the target language intensely, deeply and in creative ways. So this is quite exhilarating for someone who finds working with language deeply pleasurable. Um, and it most certainly allowed me to hone my own writing skills. And it, it also made me think about uh, how how Lucian's close engagement with translations had a very direct connection with the language, forms, and content of his created writings, right? Uh, and and I, I think when we think about Lucian as a world author, uh, a, He he was really amazing in in the way that he was able to balance uh, all his knowledge and all his readings of different writers around the world and put them into conversation with uh, us, Buddhist, Daoist, and and, and Confucian ideas, right? Whether it be in terms of form, in terms of the use of language, or in terms of content, right? And so, in that sense, I won't. we could really say that
1: Oshun's writings are, are just as of as hmm Absolutely, or even further afield and I'm thinking like of um, I guess, I think it's Revenge 2, <laughs> which is quite different and um, definitely drawing on some some different um, reference points. I mean, there's lots of and your your footnotes highlight a lot of this actually throughout the the two works. Some of the different reference points that he's making and some of the different um, authors he's drawing on absolutely with regards to you know his position in in world literature and, and reaching reaching out but also you know not just writing about as you mentioned before how he's often thought of as being a writer obsessed with China. Mm-hmm. You um we touched on it already but you note in your introduction um, that you know. There is so much darkness and death and wild grass, um, but, which is something that critics have talked a lot about, um, but the collection teems with life, which invites the reader to reflect on, you know, some really big questions. What counts as a meaningful life? What does it mean to be human? Um, And you also commented in the introduction that these pieces can be read as a whole, um, but they are often... And they can be read as standalone pieces. So, with you know those two things in mind, is there a specific story that you think really encapsulates the big "what is a meaningful life", life type of question that you see in Wild Grass? Is there one one story among the many that you want to highlight here?
0: Ocean deals with uh, these issues in so many different ways in the collection, right? What counts as meaningful life? What does it mean to be human? And one of my favorite pieces is the first called Autumn Night. Uh, the scene on, opens with a very vibrant depiction of nature, trees, flowers, and the sky. And each one is fully alive, taking on human-like qualities, coexisting sympathetically, but sometimes also in tension. But I'm going to pivot and uh, like to talk about a much shorter shorter and and morbidly humorous piece. Um, It's called Tombstone Inscriptions. And it's reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe's works, which Lucian translated and was quite fond of. And so in Tombstone Inscriptions, you have a narrator who sees himself in a dream. And this is just one of the many dreamscapes that you find in wild grass. And um, in a dream, he encounters a tombstone and a corpse. And presumably, uh, the tombstone and the corpse is the dreamer zone. And the tombstone is barely legible, but it writes about the difficulty of self-knowledge and the agony of self-reflection. Um, and then all of a sudden, the corpse sits up and starts speaking to the narrator. And rather than engaging the corpse, the narrator flees as fast as he can, right? He's afraid to look back because his corpse might be chasing after him. Um, it's just a really brilliant and genius piece. Um, and I think this piece sums up why Lucian kept death close at hand, which was that death is a reality that all of us must face yet we often will live as if this death had nothing to do with us and and this might come back to haunt us like the dream right So perhaps if we lived with death close to us with the awareness that death, could come at any moment. we would think more critically about ourselves, the meaning of this life, and also just how to live it, right? Uh, and, and with the tombstone inscriptions, right? Making me think about what we want to be inscribed on our tombstone inscriptions. So, Shin also wrote this in his uh, last piece um, in um, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Thus, which is that it's the presence of Beth what makes him feel wholly alive. Um, I might be getting a little confused. It might be the last piece of uh, Wild Grass, which is awakening. And um, his works, you know, there can be no light without darkness. You see these dialectics constantly at play in Wuxing's writings, like in death, light and dark, uh, hope and despair, right? And I think part of this living for Wuxing meant Retrospection and introspection, and really thinking very deeply about oneself, one's place in the world, and also one's responsibility to it. Right. And the shadow of death remains, reminds him to live this life meaningfully, passionately, and fully. And I think his fascination with death and his writings about
1: death also nudge his readers to consider the same. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful sentiment they, it's so wonder, wonderfully expressed. Thank you for that. And there is, you know, thinking of nostalgia and hope and, and death, so much of that carries over into the second book, the second volume, the second half of your book, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk. Um, and, you know, thinking about life and <laughs> I keep on going back to nostalgia because that is sort of... Um, how this um, how you open the introduction of this piece up um, in that your book has the cover illustration of morning blossoms gathered at dusk and I'm going to do a terrible job of describing it so dear listener you have to seek out the book because <laughs> the cover illustration um, of you know the the original or the combined version morning blossoms gathered at dusk has a woman dressed in a robe walking in a garden and it's a very cheerful, charming, sort of, I want to say rustic in that it's a little bit crude, but it's very charming. And, you know, as you described in the introduction, it has been described as nostalgic. But as you say, and I'll quote from your introduction here, yet if the home is imagined to be a place of warm, affective ties and a repository of fond childhood memories, Morning Blossoms does not quite live up to expectations. So the, the you know, the story, the pieces that follow really push back against the idea of hopeful nostalgia or from, you know, friendly, familiar nostalgia that we get from this illustration. So thinking about tone, how would you describe the overall tone of morning blossoms gathered at dusk? So the overall tone
0: of morning blossoms gathered at dusk is one of lament. Many of the events we call in the are, are traumatic and, and tragic, right? He begins small with the death of his pet mouse and then the illness and death of his father. And towards the end, the death and possibly suicide of his friend. And there are also fond memories interspersed in between, right? For example, in the garden of myriad grasses, this is a childhood paradise. He also has warm and funny memories of this nanny and and intense gratitude for his Japanese professor. Um, But even so, um, these memories are recounted recounted wistful with a note of self admonishment, right? Knowing now that that garden that was once his paradise is no longer and feeling regret for not knowing the life story of his nanny and not being a particularly good stable and and letting down his, his anatomy professor when he decided to give us medicine, right? But in the with the lament is also an appeal. It's this need to bear testimony to many of the others whose lives have been critical to shaping our own, right? And recollecting the past is a way of paying tribute to the people and the things that were meaningful to him. And so by gathering the stories of vulnerable subjects and retelling them, uh, the child, the nanny, the outcast, the forgotten professor, uh, Lushin validates their meaning and existence, right? So the names, lives, and worthwhile stories that would otherwise have been faded into obscurity are given an afterlife. And in this afterlife, there's also the potential to touch and transform those who read them of um, well, here I think uh, it resonates with the theme in Wild Grass, that each and every existence is similar and And at the same time, each of our existences is also re- relational, right? We're all touching others and, and, and leaving marks on this world.
1: Mm-hmm. Thinking of leaving those marks, you, you mentioned his nanny. Um, and this was this was a a figure, a character, a person <laughs> that I would love to hear you speak a little bit about, because she pops up in several other stories. She pops up in the beginning, um, as you mentioned, um, the very first piece in this, dogs, cats, and mice. Um, she is intimately wound up in the death of Shun's mouse, which I will, I will, I don't want to spoil that story, so I'll just leave it there. But she is involved. Oh, so she is a fascinating woman, though, as as we see her throughout this um, this work. So, could you introduce her a little bit? You know, who is she? What do we know about her? And you know, what does the portrait that Lucian paints of her, you know, tell us about him, about the collection? Um, how is she significant?
0: Uh, I love this question because Adèle is one of those memorable characters in in a memoir, right? Um, and if we compare to Lucian stories, um, when um, initial stories we see an almost impenetrable wall between intellectual narrators and peasants, uh, one can even argue that stories are more about the walls and the barriers, right, about the alienation from oneself and the alienation from others, than about the actual characters themselves. So one thinks in particular of the peasant into a hometown in Chiang at the end of blessings they're presented as dull stiff with, with wooden expressions on their faces right and A Chao or Shen's nanny as seen through the eyes of the child is portrayed very differently we see a vivid vivacious and longer than life character and and she easily steals uh, the show in, in the scenes where she shows up right um, she's flawed and endearing and hated and loved at once. She stomps on the boy's cat mouse saying, sorry, I think she been away. Um, and then. I mean, listener, listener
1: you, you did not hear that. You did not hear that. Who knows what happened to the mouse?
0: Yeah. But <laughs> even worse, right. Uh, she, she, she lies about it. Right. And, and she, she tells the boy that it had been killed by a cat. And then, and then this leads <laughs> to this whole theory about, uh, the reason why he cats me, probably because of uh, uh, this, this childhood trauma, right? Although that hatred mm-hmm. is is somewhat misplaced. Um, <clears throat> and a controls, uh, the movement of the boy, right? And makes sure following these ridiculous rules of etiquette, <clears throat> excuse me, <him. clears throat> But a also enthralls the child with colorful stories about the long hairs, you know, referring to the foxes. and in a visit to her hometown, she buys him a copy of the monster Verse, Shan Hai-Chin, the classic of lanterns and Seas, which he had been obsessed about, and, and nobody was able to get him a copy. And it turns out that this book that a gave him ends up inspiring Lucian's lifelong love of collecting picture books. Now we don't know anything about A ah Chang other than what Lu tells us, and at the end of the account, pap- he tells us that in fact he didn't know her real name or her real life circumstances. Right? Well, how did he end up becoming his nanny and coming to the household? Um, she had died probably some thirty years before he wrote the essay, and the only thing he knew, Lu said, was that she had an adopted son, and he guesses that. She might have been widowed at a young age. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, let me just clear my throat and use take a little sip of water. So, because Lucian's essay devoted to Acheon, um, even though we don't know much about her, uh, she's entered into the cultural imaginary right, this lively, colorful character, makes a deep impression on readers, who are in turn um, let, led to thinking about the roles and fates of the many Achongs of the world, right? These stories are marginalized, simplified, distorted, <clears throat> or simply remain
1: unknown. I think the reason that I wanted to ask her was about about her, about his nanny, about Achang, was because, you know, as as you mentioned, she is, she's such a, as you would imagine from a small child, such a formidable figure in the early, in the early stories, which are from Lu Xun's early life. Um, But I just love the way in which you mentioned, he responds to her procuring the book he wanted. Um, And I'm reading here from your book, after, you know, after she procures the book, he says, she was able to accomplish what others were either unwilling or unable to do. She did indeed have marvelous superpowers. My resentment against her for murdering my mouse vanished completely from this moment on. I just love this in particular just because of the, you know, the very clear love for books that he has that comes through so clearly in this story and that then just follows him through the other pieces and how it all comes back. To this woman, his nanny, the mouse killer. Um, <laughs> this because there is so much about you know his love of literature and and books and teachers that really that flows throughout um, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, um, which was just a real a real joy to read <laughs> on a on a personal level. Um,
0: I, I wanted to to add just a little note to that. Right, the the common story that we talk about. Lushan is that um, you know he, he saw this slide incident um, when he was in Japan. Um, he saw that uh, one of the Japanese there was a Japanese executioner and uh, a, a Chinese man about to be decapitated, and all the Chinese people around are looking on apathetically. And so then Lushan then decides that you know he was originally going to be a doctor and then he decides that he's going to abandon medicine and just start writing because there was no use in curing people's bodies if you couldn't cure their souls right and he wanted to save people through uh translating and uh introducing work uh works of world literature right to galvanize his own people um so this story about him just having this abrupt shift to becoming a writer, um, the shift wasn't that abrupt at all. Like he had always had this love of of reading, right? And he always also uh, had been writing uh, essays of literary criticism in uh, 1907, and he had been translating uh, works of world literature from 1903, right? And so um, I, I think this love of reading was always there from the start right in spite of what we say that there was this abrupt shift um and as a translator uh he 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 started translating in 1903 uh with uh julius burns uh science fiction novel and then at his deathbed he was translating uh goebbels uh death souls right it remained unfinished so you're absolutely right to pick up this this love of reading. He he was he's so astounding how much he read in world literature and how familiar he was with um, also just uh, traditional classical literature. Right? He people say that he's anti-traditional. Uh, in, in fact, um, um, he was very well read in the classics. Uh, he wrote classical poetry. He also compiled uh, 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 books on uh, classical Chinese fiction and, and, and poetry, right? Um, so, so the scheme of books is, is absolutely uh, uh, resonates in, in Wild Grass when he talks about the influence of these different kinds of books, right? Not just the Shanghai team, uh, but also the classics of filial piety, how they inspire terror in
1: him, right? <laughs> And, and other works that he had, he had to um, produce memorized passages from on, on the spot. <laughs> books, books of inspiring and terrifying um, um, natures of in, in throughout this work as a whole. Uh, but you know, I I had a chance there to sort of highlight, you know, one piece and one story and one one figure, one character that really, you know, strike struck me when I was reading. Um, this book, but there are so many really interesting episodes in Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk. But um, before, you know, we draw to a close, Eileen, I wanted to give you a chance. Is there, you know, one more piece from this work that you want to highlight here? Maybe one that, you know, speaks to something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. If, If you had to highlight one among the many, what one would it be?
0: Since I'm in Japan right now, I thought I'd draw attention to the essay Professor Fugino. Uh Here, Wuxin memorializes his Nanabe professor from his student days in Ukraine. Um What's interesting is the degree of sentimentality and the way he glorifies as Japanese professor. I, I usually, Wuxin's uh, portrayals of the characters are extremely complex. So, if you permit me, Sarah, may I read the ending of the essay? Of course. Sure. So um, in this passage, Lu is writing about his professor 20 years after he last had any contact with him. And I'll start reading. But for some reason, I often think of him. Among those whom I consider my like teachers, he is the one who gave me the most encouragement and the one I feel most grateful to. I often think of how his ardent hopes for me his tireless teaching were on a smaller scale for China in hopes that China would develop a modern medical science on a larger scale it was for scientific research that is in hopes that modern medical science would be transmitted to China in my mind and in my heart his character is a great one even though his name isn't known to many people. So. Here we see that Professor Fujina's voice and downplay is portrayed as a material figure fighting against the oppression of the Chinese people. Now, I wanted to go back to Shen's reason for translating, right? Why was translation such an important part of his career, right? And, and translation was really where, where he started, right? He said he translated to search for new voices from oral rams. Uh, which is it is that voice of another that we are able to find a voice of our own when we have either lost it or 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 or, or just don't have one, right? So Rush sure, notes at the end of Professor Pujnon that whenever his spirits are flagging, right? It is the photograph of this teacher that's hung on the wall and also the memory of this teacher's voice that urges him to keep on writing. And what was Lu Xun writing at the time? Lu was writing essays attacking his intellectual compatriots whom he felt were complicit with the government's oppression of its own people, right? And he derisively refers to his intellectual adversaries as estimable uh, gentlemen, general gens. Now, at the core of this essay, which is among Lu Xun's most hopeful, is a response to the question, what does it mean to be human in an inhuman world, right? Lucien wrote this essay in 1926. So it was already two decades after he last had contact with his teacher. Now what's interesting is that the timing of the publication, it was published at the height of anti-Japanese sentiments, right? And and this essay has its share of inaccuracies uh, pointed out to by many scholars. Uh, while some of it might be the result of laxes in men- memory, many are likely deliberate, um, some ac- inaccur- inaccuracies are there to enhance traumatic effect, uh, and also the sentimental kind of emotional part of the work. And others are likely there to overcome that kind of jingoistic nationalism um, that was prevalent at the time, and, and likely also to evade censorship. So... And this line explain why, for example, the essay is extremely sentimental. Uh, also, why Professor Fujin is um, depicted you know, almost more Chinese than the Chinese compatriots, right? Uh, uh, so devoted to the freedom of the Chinese people. Now, this imagined friendship that Lu Shen reconstructs, it crosses national boundaries between two antagonistic nations at that. And it shows the capacity of the voice of another to transform one's own. And what's most remarkable is that during afterlife of this essay, Uh, when Lushin selected works that were to be translated and published in Japan, he left the selections to his translator, but asked that Professor Fujino be included. And so the famous essay has been anthologized in junior high school textbooks in China. Uh, the translation is also included in some high school textbooks in Japan. And the friendship with both men has been memorialized in books and conferences and different languages, uh, also in Xin museums in Beijing, Shanghai, Shaosuo, and in Japan, also in Sendai and Awara, the hometown of Fujino Genkuro, who, who would have remained unknown were it not for Lushin's tribute to them. and so. The story of this friendship between the Japanese professor and his Chinese student, as Xun has depicted it, has endured and continues to endure as a symbol of Sino Japanese friendship, even through times of political duress. Um, and it's generated new personal and boundary crossing exchanges among those who've been moved by their friendship. And, and now it's almost 120 years since the two men first met right and Mm. it's an example of the power of storytelling at its best right it shows the capacity of literature and art to cross boundaries of space and time and to lose people and also
1: to transform the ways we see and relate with one another and the world thank you for highlighting that story in particular um i think it's a great place actually with you know the power of storytelling and of um (laughs) I'm conscious of the fact that we're navigating time zones right now, so we're reaching across. and all of all of that, also of books and of of lost lecture notes. there's it was one of my favorite pieces in in the work. So thank you for highlighting it and for providing that really interesting, you know, historical context and background of of how that story, you know, came to be. But with this story, um, we come to the end, actually, of your book, almost, and the end of our conversation. But before we draw to a complete close, um, Eileen, what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? You you mentioned a little bit before that I think you, you said the complete works of Lucian are 18 or 15 volumes. I can't remember, but 18. So... Are you working on more, Lucian, or, or what is what are you working on right now? So I'm also addicted to Lucian. I can't get
0: off the Lucian bag. <laughs> he just continues to inspire me so. And so at the moment, I'm writing an essay on Lucian and the transformative power of art. Uh, I've also begun translating some of the stories from Outcry, and I'm really just enjoying the opportunity to go through that portal again, right? To immerse myself in another one of Lucien's worlds.
1: So, so I'm still working on Lucien, still inspiring. Fabulous. Well, the my very best of you know luck and and hope for good writing days and nights um, and i hope that he he continues to be you know exhilarating for you um, best of luck with those future projects and thank you for taking the time to talk with me about this project
0: thank you so much sarah i'm really enjoying the conversation <laughs>